0: The podcast about immigration and other border-related issues. I'm here today with uh, Peter Edelman and my co-hosts Peter Edelman and Steve Murins. Uh This is Deanna Okunachoff. Um I think I'm going to hand it over to you, Peter, to introduce what we're doing this session.
1: Sure. Um, so yeah, I think we're we're going to be talking today. We're doing our first uh, kind of cross uh, uh, um, collaborative podcast. Uh, so we were I was very fortunate to be able to connect with. Uh, uh, Emily Tamman and Michael Spratt, uh, who do the Docket uh, podcast. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Docket, it's uh, um, it's, it's an awesome criminal law podcast. So the, those anybody in criminal law is likely familiar with it, or who's listening to podcasts in Canadian criminal law, they did a great series uh, of commentary around making a murderer. So those of you who haven't seen the uh, the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer, uh, Emily Tamman was a former prosecutor. Uh, And Michael Spratt is a defense lawyer. And Emily's mom is Louise Arbour, who's a former judge of the Supreme Court of Canada. And the three of them did some some great commentary around making a murderer that... uh, I know my my wife and i uh who my, my wife is a crown prosecutor uh as well and uh, we we spent uh um a, a lot of time a couple summers ago listening to those sessions and so they were very uh, uh, so it was great to actually meet uh to meet emily and michael in person and we had a discussion about the intersection between criminal and immigration law and so we were hoping today to have uh, we're going to have a little bit of an intro and and talk a little bit more on the immigration side uh, of that crossover between the two and, and so we'll
2: put up a link to to uh their podcast in the show notes it's a great way to stay informed about criminal law and uh they're actually also a husband and wife and so they're very they play off each other really well and it's really funny to uh listen to
1: So, yeah, so the uh, so we were going to have a discussion, one of the um, and there is some discussion of the case that I, I was in Ottawa for, which was the the Wong case. And, and that'll be in the the discussion that I have with uh, with Michael and Emily. But we were hoping to discuss uh, an immigration case uh, amongst the three of us today, which is the decision that came down in in Tran, which is a decision that we've discussed before uh, on the podcast. So just in terms of a, of a reminder about what Tran was about, there were there were actually four issues in Tran. And two of which the Supreme Court actually dealt with. So one was uh, standard review, which I know that Steve's uh, chomping at the bit to uh, to, to delve into again because he he loves when we delve into these these standard review discussions. Um, the uh, the other two issues were ones of statutory interpretation, and so it came down. they were issues around. Does, how Section 36 of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act or IRPA should be interpreted. And so Section 36 makes someone inadmissible for serious criminality if you have been convicted of an offense that either you've been punished by a term of imprisonment of more than six months or that the maximum term is 10 years. And so both of those issues were uh, relevant in Mr. Tran's case, because what had happened with Mr. Tran, he was convicted with respect to production of marijuana, and at the time that he committed the offense, the maximum penalty was seven years, and it was raised subsequently to 14 years. And the officer took the view that the 14 years should apply, and the Supreme Court disagreed. In fact, the federal court had disagreed. The federal court had said that was not right and that you don't retrospectively apply the, the new, uh, the, the higher penalty penalty. Um, the federal court of appeal took a different view of that. And then the, the Supreme Court uh, agreed with, with our position with respect to Mr. Tran's case and so and said that the, the maximum penalty that should apply is the penalty that was in place at the time you committed the offense, which is how the criminal law works as well. In other words, you need to know in advance what the penalties are for the behavior that you engage in. You don't get Punished for stuff that you didn't know was serious uh, at the time you, you committed the offense. Uh, so just
2: to slow it down a little and break it down, if you, for those listeners who remember, we did a podcast on uh, retrospectivity with um, Garth Barrier. The issue that Peter is referencing to and what happened in Tran is a change in law that had consequences for someone based on their past actions. So here he produces marijuana. He gets sentenced at the time that he sentenced. The maximum sentence is seven years. Flash forward several years later, um, there's a change. The conservatives increase what the maximum sentence can be. And so as a result of that increase, because of how immigration law deals with convictions he now faces
1: deportation. Correct. And, and the, the, the Supreme Court pointed out that what this the interpretation that the department was putting forward meant was that at the time that the law, when the law was changed from seven to 14 years, all of the people who had been convicted over the past 30 years or more suddenly became inadmissible. So in other words, a a permanent resident who was convicted with respect to a marijuana offense in 1975 and hadn't become a a citizen would suddenly have become inadmissible for serious criminality as soon as the law was changed. And the Supreme Court essentially said that... um, or actually did say that there is a presumption that the law is not retrospective. In other words, that unless the legislature clearly says that's what they're doing, then you can't uh, you can't you don't apply the law uh, <laughs> backwards in that way. And the
2: other thing to understand, just so that this makes sense, is that in Canada's immigration system, when a permanent resident, which is a landed immigrant, um, using the more familiar term, in determining whether they face loss of status and deportation from Canada, the law doesn't only just look at what a person was actually convicted of. It's what the maximum sentence of that crime could have been. So in Mr. Tran's case, it wasn't that the Conservatives changed the law so that Mr. Tran's sentence went from seven years to more than ten. It's just they increased what the maximum term of sentence under that crime could be. So, for example, if, let's say, criminal harassment the maximum term of a sentence could be 10 years, even if you only get charged, uh, even if you only get charged and convicted for say a sentence of one year because the maximum sent a oh, one year might not be a good example for a sentence of two or go- three months. Yeah. Or even if you get a, probation, yeah, cause there is another way that you can face deportation. But if let's say you get a two or three month sentence, because the maximum sentence is 10 years or more, you're still inadmissible. So that's why this change in the increase of the maximum sentence uh, impacted Mr. Trant.
0: And the, the sentence is supposed to, the maximum sentence is supposed to infer the, the level of seriousness of the offense. So it can distinguish between whether something is just criminality or serious criminality as well, which um, affects other rights.
1: Which any of us who work in this area know that that's not necessarily the case and that you have a lot of things. Uh, we see that in particular with respect to document offenses, that um, uttering a forged document has a 10-year maximum, but, you know, a, a 19-year-old who goes to Seattle and, and uh, uses a fake ID to get into a bar uh, mm-hmm. is uttering a forged document and would be inadmissible under those provisions, um, like under the foreign criminality provisions, but. Um, and so that's one of the the areas in terms of overlap between the two that we definitely see. For criminal lawyers, the maximum penalties don't really matter. Uh, what matters is what's actually going to be applied in a given case. And uh, in but for us, it makes a big difference whether you're convicted under one section or another. Hmm. Um, and then the actual sentence matters as well, which is the second part of this case. Which
2: and uh, just before it was interesting listening. To your interview with uh, Michael Spratt, where he's a criminal lawyer, not that familiar with the immigration, the intricacies of the immigration system and just hearing his and Emily's reactions to as you were describing this. I just drove that point home. Mm.
0: It's actually quite shocking sometimes when criminal lawyers will contact immigration lawyers as they should before they are dealing with how to actually dispose of a sentence with somebody who is a foreign national or a permanent resident of Canada. Um, The idea that... Because there is that spectrum in a criminal um, sentencing that um, it really, it's the sentence that actually matters, whereas there can be entirely different consequences just based on the way that the matter has been disposed of. So that can be quite shocking.
1: I have to say that in my experience between the two, um, I think that uh, our legal training does a much better job of instilling the fear of God into any lawyer outside the criminal law in dealing with criminal matters. So if if, if somebody gets arrested, it doesn't occur to a corporate lawyer or to an immigration lawyer, oh, you know what, maybe I'll just give this guy some advice Hmm. Uh, that doesn't even, you know, I've rarely had. Situations where somebody who's not a criminal lawyer thinks it would be a good idea to give somebody advice in criminal law. Um, And so generally, I I don't have the problem from the immigration bar in terms of, there's often a lot of misunderstandings about how the criminal system works, Mm. but in terms of actually dabbling in criminal law or ignoring consequences, they're often very obvious. If the police show up at my client's door, uh, I better call a criminal lawyer.
0: But your point is that it doesn't always work the other way around, where a criminal lawyer will turn their mind to what the immigration consequences, because you might get a sentence that looks more favorable to the client from a criminal standpoint. But if it has very serious immigration consequences, in term, including loss of status, then um, that, that does up
1: the ante. Yeah, and I think that's something that criminal lawyers are learning
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and hopefully after, uh, depending on how the Supreme Court decides our case in Wong that we argued last week, maybe there'll be a much clearer message around that uh, in terms of, of being cautious uh, in how they engage in these cases. Mm. Um Which brings us to the second part of of TRAN, which is the actual sentences. Um, And this was something that made no sense to criminal lawyers whatsoever. I mean, this this was one of those situations where the – and the court itself, um, which it it hit me when we were – arguing tran that uh, I, I realized as we argue how many of the justices on the Supreme Court have sat in criminal courts because they a lot of them came up through the superior courts and the superior courts all hear criminal cases. And so what the issue was, was around uh, conditional sentence orders. And a conditional sentence order is essentially a form of punitive um, it's a punitive sentence that's meant to replace a jail sentence. So in other words, we try not to put people in jail unless it's necessary. And in some situations, you can punish somebody by essentially grounding them. By essentially, it's a form of house arrest, uh, usually with a bunch of very restrictive conditions, community work service, and other things um, that tend to be much longer than a jail sentence. And so, for an equivalent sentence, you would have uh, maybe a three-month jail sentence, but a, a 12-month conditional sentence order would be of an, of an equivalent level of gravity. And what had happened is because of the way the criminal code is written, there it's referred to as a term of imprisonment in some parts of the criminal code. And the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act talks about terms of imprisonment in terms of the six months if you're imposed if you have a six month term of imprisonment imposed on you uh you are inadmissible for serious criminality and you also lose some appeal rights so you lose a right of appeal to the immigration appeal division which is quite significant as well and so the um it's que- so going back to Trent. So he got a conditional sentence. So he got a conditional sentence order of 12 months. And so the, the question was, was whether or not the conditional sentence order was a term of imprisonment of more than six months. And what we were able to show, with some help from some uh, some amazing students from Carl, who did a lot of research going through all the court of appeal cases, we had these this long list Carl's of cases. Carl's the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers. It is indeed. <laughs> 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 or is it Carl's? <laughs> it Carl no, they're, it's, it's from the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, and they, uh, but who uh, who were able to get uh, to gather a list of cases in which courts of appeal had uh, overturned had had modified sentences to bring conditional sentence orders they had replaced a conditional sentence order with a jail term of over six months with a jail term of under six months because of aggravating circumstances. In other words, the court considered it a more severe sentence to give them a jail sentence less than six months right. than the conditional sentence order of more and vice versa, where jail sentences of under six months had been replaced with conditional sentence orders of longer than six months because of mitigating circumstance. In other words, it was a less serious Case and they got a longer conditional sentence order. And so the court essentially said the, that to apply this as a uh, marker of gravity for serious criminality in terms of the conditional sentence orders uh, was absurd. Hmm. Um, and it was uh, so which for criminal lawyers, that was a very obvious thing. Um, and so uh, actually intuitively,
0: I- it's an obvious thing, actually, that that you shouldn't have a situation where a client is pleading for a jail sentence because that will have better outcomes for them from an immigration standpoint that sort of goes against common sense. So I felt like it was just a purposive approach to this whole idea that kind of. Breeds some common sense into the idea.
1: It was uh, well. I have to say there was there was definitely uh, a, a sense among some of the criminal bar where it's like, really, you had to go to Ottawa for that. And, uh, in fact, my wife's my wife's reaction in the morning we got the decision in Tran was uh, so I'm like, so oh, you know, we oh, we got a, we got a positive. Decision. She's like,
0: yeah, duh. Uh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it actually did read like duh to me. When I was, <laughs> really? yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Anyway, we uh, so in, in some sometimes things that are obvious to people in one area of the law are not necessarily obvious in other areas.
0: I have to say even just the brevity of the decision, it was like it was dealt with so concisely. That makes no sense. This is what it should mean. Um, And uh.
2: So then let's go, though, just so that, you know, the Federal Court of Appeal, which ruled the other way. Mm -hmm. um, Let's look then at their decision, because they obviously the I can't remember. Is it a panel on the Federal Court of Appeal or was it the one? So the panel, the three um, was it a split decision or unanimous?
1: It was a unanimous decision that that turned a lot on a, standard a very review. standard of review. So yeah. it was a very deferential oh, approach where essentially the court implied that there were two, two, there could be two reasonable interpretations. And and part of it turned on some discussions that had happened in Parliament and some of it turned on, you know, are there two reasonable interpretations? And I think that argument was probably more um Viable with respect to the retrospectivity part, because that part of the statute is at least more ambiguous than the with the conditional sentence orders, which I I don't I found it difficult to uh, wrap my head around having a reasonable interpretation that had absurd results Mm. because for me, reasonableness and absurdity
0: kind of coexist. Yeah. yeah.
2: When you read the, (laughs) like when I read the federal court of appeal decision, they talk about, it almost came across to me as well. We don't want to say it's reasonable, but given the Supreme court and how they're dealing with standard of review, we have no choice but to say that there's multiple approaches. Do you think at all that it like, was the, the federal court of appeal was trying to lob this to the Supreme Court to redefine how standard of review
1: works. I think that when the federal court of appeal explicitly said that they were struggling with the standard of review issues Yeah, um, and the Supreme Court didn't deal with it again. Um, and it, and I'm not sure what to read into that. Um, in particular, with, with what they said is that on both standards, correctness and reasonableness, this was the the results, um, which I think is uh, arguably. Uh, I, I think that that's defensible on the on the conditional sentence order issue. I, I think for me, I think I, I accept that. Uh, on the retrospectivity issue, I find it a bit more challenging, not as challenging as I found it on Kandasami. So Kandasami was the case that they dealt with uh, humanitarian and compassionate relief. There they overturned an interpretation, it's an interpretation of what does humanitarian and compassionate mean. There's obviously more than one reasonable interpretation of that. There's no...
2: There's well, not- and they found that the one that the Immigration Department, the Federal Court, and the Federal Court of Appeal have used for at least a decade that everyone who was involved in that or everyone who was in, interpreting it that way was an unreasonable interpretation.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is, I don't think that word <laughs> means what I think it means. Yeah. And if that's the case, then, you know, that we have that many unreasonable Judges and and decision makers, like we're talking about thousands of decision makers.
0: So your point is that you think really Kanthasami was decided on the standard of correctness in your view. That's how that has to.
1: Well, either that or reasonableness means correctness, right? Like as that's if the yeah. like, spectrum it's on it's not, is, is a lot narrower.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Than, and can you just go back to what you were saying about retrospectivity? You think that that that. Is a harder argument to make that that was actually um, about co- that that was actually um, should have been a correctness standard. It's because there are multiple reasonable interpretations. Can you spell out what you mean by that?
1: Sorry, what, I, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that there are necessarily multiple. Uh, reasonable interpretations but I think that there needed to be uh, it it clearly was the right result on mm-hmm. a correctness standard and right. I agree with the results yeah. um, I think that on a correctness standard it, it made sense um, the the court simply stating that this the result would have been the same on the reasonableness standard is to suggest that there are no other reasonable interpretations but they engaged in no discussion around the scope of reasonableness, right? So does it, does reasonableness lend itself to multiple reasonable interpretations of the law? Um, I think on the retrospectivity, uh, it really came down to uh, there's, there is ambiguity in the statute and that's why the presumption against retrospectivity applied. And they, and, and, Arguably, that was the only reasonable interpretation, and I think it's defensible. I would have liked to see them defend it. Right. It's it, it's it's more difficult. It's more difficult to defend. The CSO issue was obvious to me. The retrospectivity issue was more ambiguous, and that they didn't, you know, in terms of saying that you decided that on a reasonableness standard is. Um, I, I think it's defensible. It's not anywhere. It's much more defensible than Kantasami. Right. Like, okay. for me, there's no question for me that Kantasami was not decided on a reasonableness standard yeah. as as reasonableness has been understood in the past. Right. Right. Is in it's not. It's a different type of reasonableness that the Supreme Court applies hmm. when they engage in statutory interpretation, which is essentially what Justice Harrington said in a recent case where he said, um once the Supreme Court has decided on the reasonable interpretation, that is the only reasonable interpretation mm. which is essentially talking correctness. about correctness yes, right exactly. So it's not um, have um, we talked about campus on this podcast?
2: I or? think we
0: have I, I we feel did. like we did I can was it in our session with Alan or no maybe not. I feel It'd
2: like be. we did. I think we did. I think we did yeah. at one point. Okay. So. Just to recap, in case people mm. are wondering what we're talking about with Can Canada, Sammy's another Supreme Court uh, decision in which the question there was, well, it wasn't so much the question, I think, going up as much as what the Supreme Court ultimately ruled, which is that uh, basically any, most parts of immigration law can be waived if there's sufficient humanitarian and compassionate Uh, considerations that would justify it. It's
0: like the equitable jurisdiction. Yeah,
2: the equitable jurisdiction uh, applied usually mostly in permanent residence. So, for example, if somebody is criminally inadmissible to Canada and they're not eligible for rehabilitation but they have a family and children here, uh, someone... You know, you could say that there's sufficient humanitarian and compassionate considerations that they can stay despite being inadmissible to Canada. And so how this test of humanitarian and compassionate is applied
0: was applied, was applied (laughs)
2: for the longest time was there had to be You had to show that there was hardship,
0: unusual, undeserved and disproportionate Disproportionate. hardship. And there was lots of text on what each of those terms meant distinctly. And you had to kind of set out. Your case against those three sort of standards.
2: Yeah, as Peter said, it was the standard for a decade uh, amongst all level of well, the federal court and the federal court of appeal, as well as immigration officers. And the Supreme well, Court set that aside saying that's an unreasonable interpretation. So that's just can't the Sammy in yeah. Yeah. 45
1: seconds. Well, to be fair to the court, there had been another line of cases from the, from Chirwa. There were, the, there were two lines of cases in the, I believe it was in the 1990s. There to Chirwa would have been... In any event, yeah. it would have been the two. But there were two, there were two lines of interpretation. And what happened was one of the lines got integrated into the manuals. And that yeah. then became the de facto standard. Right. And Truara was more at the Immigration Refugee Board
2: that you'd see it. I don't think I've ever cited, because of the manuals, Trara towards the department in an
1: yeah. application. No, and it, well, and it was something that, that Barb Jackman had been arguing for years, that Cheerwell was the proper interpretation mm-hmm. of. Uh, and so this new interpretation, which I'm going to let... Deanna, uh because this is, this is more what is what is the new standard?
0: Well, it's essentially it's about hardship uh, in a much more generalized way. What is the degree of hardship and that there's not this kind of three cornered uh, test for how you actually establish that? It's supposed to be a more fulsome, holistic view at the overall hardship to the applicant. And uh, and that it was almost as if they took the position that an officer was kind of fettering their discretion to kind of try and trying to look at it within that three-pointed test.
1: Right. And so, you know, that this test that had been applied for two decades or you know, like it had been applied for a long time uh, by a lot of people, like we're talking thousands of officers, hundreds of deci- of other decision makers. Uh, and then in, in hundreds of federal court decisions and federal sure. court of appeal decisions, uh, turned out the entire time was unreasonable.
0: And so like to go to the specifics of it, when you're talking about unreasonable, undeserved and disproportionate, it could have been that they found that the hardship was unreasonable and undeserved, but that it wasn't worse than for another, other group of people. So, um, that, that articulation of what hardship meant could have actually changed a substantive decision, even though there was a clear demonstrated hardship.
2: Okay. So retrospectivity, conditional sentence standard of review was the fourth.
1: Well, the fourth, the fourth issue that didn't really get dealt with was the procedural fairness aspect of it. So Mr. Tran, had they had used a, a whole bunch of police reports in cases where Mr. Tran had never been charged or convicted or the charges had been stayed um, and they were used to, to suggest that Mr. Tran was in fact a recidivist and had this long history and relied on all of these police reports without disclosing them to Mr. Tran. So there was a procedural fairness issue uh, there. The, the court didn't deal with that issue um, but partly because it became moot with the other two with the decision on the other two points. So in other words, Mr. Tran is no longer inadmissible to Canada, so it's there's a non it's a non issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they didn't deal with the with the, the fourth issue. It was of, of particular concern. I know for for example, the African Canadian Legal Clinic had made um, they intervened in the case specifically on that issue uh, because the Black community is over policed and so if you're going to start relying on interactions with police as an indicator just
2: interactions not
1: even charges or well he got pulled over his car was parked in front of a house that had a grow up in it Uh, his there were like these these types of indicators but because he and what the argument from the African Canadian legal clinic was that if you are in an over policed community then you're going to have more of these suspicions in turn you know it because you're there's gonna just gonna be more reports we get carded all the time it was the argument from the is, is the argument from the black community in, in Ontario for example the police pull us over they you know so we show up in police computers and there's no ability to respond to these things unlike when you're criminally charged where you can at least defend yourself um, what you end up with is a bunch of police reports that say, well, you were in this uh, in this neighborhood. You were seen at this bar, which has this reputation or these types of things that are very amorphous types of allegations that somebody who's not in, in an over policed community just doesn't have. So they were interesting issues. Um, I, I've seen the federal court address that before, and they've always just said
2: that that should be given almost zero weight uh, in someone's determination of all the factors, if there's usually it deals with charges that are either acquittals or just withdrawn, but um, I don't see why that wouldn't extend to some guy lives next to a grow up.
1: And that was Justice O'Reilly's view uh, in, 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 the, in the federal court level in Mr. Mm-hmm. Tran's case. Uh, the federal court of appeal took a different view of that. Yeah.
0: Before we move on, though, I would like to talk for a second about. On the point of the conditional sentence, um, sorry, not the conditional sentence. On the um, trying to remember the the position, we we know how the um, department argued it um, on the notion of the standard of review. But how about on the point of law? Um, what was the argument in favor of treating the conditional sentence as being? the same as a prison sentence was it strictly like i know they referred in the decision to the fact that there was discussions in um at committee hearings and they hadn't carved it out and so that should be interpreted as being that was that the entire argument on that or
1: thank you for raising that i I, I appreciate you bringing that up, but huh. the, essentially the Canadian Bar Association, among others, uh, at the time that C forty three was uh, uh, was being so C forty three was a um, an amendment not to that provision. It was actually an amendment to the appeal provisions, and when we, because I was involved in putting some of those submissions together um, appeared. And I appeared before parliament uh, on uh, the parliamentary committee on this issue, as did actually uh, our current immigration minister, uh,
0: uh, right.
1: Minister Hassan, Hassan. Had, had appeared at, um, on behalf of the Somali community at the right. time. The um, this issue was raised because they were dropping the um, the threshold for appeal rights from 2 years to 6 months right. and at two years, it doesn't matter. The, the conditional sentence order issue doesn't matter at two years because you can't get a conditional sentence order longer than two, two years less a day. In other words, if you're going to get a, fe- a penitentiary sentence, you can't get a conditional sentence order. That's that's a precondition to getting a conditional sentence order. And so it was it, for a long time, it was a non-issue. And when they were dropping the level, so now if you get a sentence of, of six, six months... months or more. In other words, you need to have a sentence of six months less a day to keep your appeal rights. Uh, there were submissions made in Parliament and there were a number of there were three amendments that have been proposed as a result of those submissions that referred to conditional sentence orders. Right. And because we had made submissions saying, well, look, if this gets interpreted in a way that includes conditional sentence orders, then uh, it's going to be a problem. It creates an unfairness. And the argument from the government and from the court was that, well, Parliament considered this, and they obviously were okay with it. Um, the Supreme Court took a different view of that, um, but in terms of the way and, and my approach to making submissions to Parliament has changed as a result of that experience of being in court where they're like, well, this guy Edelman said that conditional sentence or this conditional sentence orders were terms of imprisonment and this was a problem. And I'm like, well, you shouldn't listen to that guy. He doesn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Uh, but the, the the CBA submission, you know, the, the submissions from a number of different organizations. But when you actually look at the into the the uh, the submissions in context, what we were saying is this is a problem if you interpret it this way, yeah. um, and there was a risk that it be interpreted that way because that's the way the department was interpreting it. Yeah. Um, I think the Supreme Court got it exactly. Like I can't remember
2: the exact wording that they used, but when they were basically said. Parliament hears a lot of things, not even the government. It's not even the government that hears everything directly at the committee stage. It's that committee hears dozens of witnesses, thousands upon thousands of words being spoken, Mm. and they're not going to address every single line being said. So you can't just assume that they explicitly considered what Mr. Edelman said at committee. And then because they... Well, by silence, that there's silence on what Edelman said, that they didn't respond directly to him and say, hey, we've heard you and we're ignoring it. You can't infer that they heard him and said, you know what, we've considered this.
0: Mm. But to give an example of a situation, somebody might have been um, convicted of a very um, not a serious offense and have uh, received a sentence, a conditional sentence of. Uh, six months, and then not only be inadmissible, but not even have the right of appeal, Um, no opportunity to raise some of the humanitarian factors that we talked about in reference to Campus AMI. So...
1: No, it's a big, and I, I've been surprised at, at how many people were, uh, like, I've just gotten feedback over the last, uh, the last month or two as to how many people were affected in other provinces, uh, which I, I wasn't aware.
2: Well, weren't there, i remember seeing on the list there were a whole bunch of IAD members that weren't. Staying their proceedings until TRAN mm. was decided, and instead proceeded on the basis of the Federal Court of Appeal decision.
0: I actually had an IAD hearing the day, the morning that the uh, that the TRAN decision came down, and I think that there must have been some big huddle because the hearings were postponed for a period of time. Uh, people trying to figure out what was going to be the impact. I'm I'm sure in terms of the triaging of cases that that were in the systems where maybe the the TRAN decision would have affected the outcomes.
1: No, and it does so, have a significant uh, impact for. Criminal criminal lawyers as well, just in terms of the, the one mm-hmm. for the criminal lawyers who are listening and and for others in terms of the being able to get conditional sentence orders uh, to avoid immigration consequences is that if a conditional, and this is something that was pointed out to me by, by another uh, um, criminal lawyer uh, when we were in Ottawa last week, is that if you... Uh, If you have pre-sentence custody that's credited at less than six months and then get a conditional sentence order on top of that, you're still under the six-month threshold for maintaining appeal rights or for – because the conditional sentence order doesn't count as a term of imprisonment, the pre-sentence custody does – so as long as you're not credited for more than six months less a day of the pre-sentence custody, you can use the pre-sentence custody, and then layer a, a conditional sentence order on top of it, and and still maintain appeal rights or avoid inadmissibility. admissibility. So it it as people are thinking this through, there's it looks like there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of different options that are, that are going to open themselves up to people who find themselves uh, um, with precarious. Immigration status yeah. before the criminal tra- the criminal courts
2: so in the few minutes we have left you've now appeared twice before the supreme court um Three or times. as in a case that you were apple and, you know, apple and apple was one of my cases as well oh, apple and apple. but there were like 12
1: other there were a lot of others this is, this is the second time when i've been yeah we're like we've so been.
2: you shaved the first time
1: I did. <laughs> did. you shave
2: this time as well?
0: I
1: did. You know. <laughs> yes.
0: I'm now I'm, I'm glad we got to the importance. Yeah, that's the really? importance. Yeah, exactly.
2: right.
1: So beyond, you're shaving. Right. So actually, you know what? I do have a because I, I, I told Michael that I didn't have a ritual. I guess I do have a ritual. Oh, ah, yeah, yeah. uh, that, that's the. That's actually a good segue
2: into the recording that you did with uh, uh, Michael spratt and Emily Teman that you actually do have. You shave. Is there any other tips though that you'd give to people appearing before the
1: Supreme Court? Or, um, I mean, the practice is uh, practice, and, and help is key. Um, it's a very collaborative effort. Uh, going up, um, the Supreme Court Advocacy Institute uh, is amazing. Um, basically, they about a week before you get to plead your case in a kind of moot session with three experienced Supreme Court advocates, uh, who provide invaluable feedback. So, you know, that's, those sessions are, are huge. Um, and so those, but in terms of the actual oral advocacy, in terms of written advocacy, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to focus. And, uh, I mean, the big one is to remember that it's a national court that's not Particularly interested in the result in your case, and so you have to frame things in terms of the broader principles. Uh, and it's it's not like appearing in front of most other courts; um, they're much more interested in broad principles, systemic issues, right. and tests. Like that—that's what we became very clear to us last week on Wong was that what they were interested in is is a test and how to set things up in terms of guilty pleas um, systemically. Their and
0: rule of law issues, like big concept issues, the knowability of the law and that
1: exactly. sort of yeah, principle. Yeah. I mean, that's the stuff that the Supreme Court does and, and is right. interested in. Um, and uh, I guess that would be my biggest tip for people who are going uh, or who want to get in front of the Supreme Court on the leave applications. Um, the fact that the court underneath got it wrong. It's not a court of error, and they're not there to fix errors from the lower courts or the courts of appeal. They're there to, or that there's an injustice in your case, regardless of how strongly you feel about the injustice in your case. If it's not systemic and national, um, they're not going to they're not going to be interested. And so you need to focus on uh, really. Um, and there's there's a lot of good material online with respect to those uh, to those approaches. But in terms of leave applications and and the written advocacy, that's that's really key to remember who it is you're and what they're interested in.
0: And that's how the research, I think, seems to have worked so well in the Chan case that, you know, being able to show how those criminal sentences are being administered um, by a review of the jurisprudence, that that has to inform... The way that it's going to be interpreted in the immigration context. Otherwise, you have two—you're uh, going in two separate directions in terms of the punitive impact of a sentence—and yeah. it seems like it worked really well.
1: And the other thing—I mean, the, the other thing I would encourage—like, go go and have a look at our, uh, like, on our our website, we've we put up a, an uh, an overview of all the people who were involved in TRAN. I mean, there's just a lot of people who who put uh, who put time and, and gave great gave amazing feedback and helped at different stages. Of in the process, but it was very much a collaborative effort among a lot of really. It's, we really have a very collaborative bar. Mm, who uh, and it's it it was really like tran in particular was an amazing experience for me in terms of uh, just seeing how willing people were and and uh, to engage in it. So you know go and go and have a look at the the list. It's like a who's who of the of the immigration bar of the the people who provided feedback and were and were involved in it. It was it was quite amazing.
0: Great. Congrats.
1: All right. Well, thank you. Excellent. So now I guess we'll move on to our, our discussion with Emily and uh, and and Michael, and um, we'll talk to everybody at, at some point in the future.
3: So we're starting now. Uh, so we're really excited today that we have uh, Peter Edelman joining us from Vancouver. Welcome, Peter.
4: Thank you.
3: Peter uh, is in town for a uh, hearing tomorrow at the Supreme Court that he's going to tell us about.
4: What? I thought you flew here just to record here. <laughs> he loves it. Well, the no, I, happen to, oh, I, I happened to. Oh, I'm also doing this. Oh, case. you I like to schedule the case because the case. I, <laughs> I was got able to set this up. Got it.
3: Peter is also the co-host of the podcast Borderlines, an immigration law podcast. So we're really excited to have this opportunity to collaborate as kind of a joint docket Borderlines uh, initiative.
1: Yeah, no, it should be. It's uh, it's fun. I think it's this
4: an interesting overlap between the two areas that uh, hopefully both of our listeners will be interested in. Yeah, well, there's lots of overlap between immigration and criminal law and. That's sort of what brings you to the Supreme Court, right? It is. That's. Uh, I mean, we've, uh, and
1: a lot of my practice is in that overlap between the two. This particular case has to do with somebody who uh, wasn't told about the immigration consequences when he entered his plea, and so is, uh, which is a problem that we see across the criminal the criminal system. Unfortunately, is people not. Uh, not being told about what the consequences are or um, people in the criminal system not understanding the consequences and doing things that they think are going to help uh, that may not help. And so that's yeah pretty much what we've got uh what we're arguing in this case and what we've argued in a lot of my practice is kind of dealing with these, cleaning up the messes after the fact.
3: It's really special, because we've talked before on the podcast about the real challenge of dealing with the intersection between immigration and criminal law, mostly because most criminal lawyers are criminal specialists. And in fact... Most criminal lawyers, I think, aren't even licensed to offer advice on immig- in relation to immigration law, per se. And that's probably a good thing, because most of them don't know very much about it. And when I was working for the federal crown, we had the same problem there, is that our prosecutors didn't have... Um, and sometimes defense lawyers would ask, well, what what will this mean? You know, I said, I'm not giving you legal advice on that. But I also don't know. And I had really pushed within the public prosec- prosecution service for the delivery of some training to a criminal prosecutors. On exactly this issue.
1: Well, especially give- I mean today it's it's something where we see more and more people, not only more and more Implications on the immigration side, where people's status is less stable than it used to be. And it used to be that you had very broad range of appeals and very restricted areas where people would be found criminally inadmissible. And so the implications were less significant. So it was more. It took a lot more before somebody would get deported because of criminal involvement with the criminal justice system. Um, and so we see a lot more interactions between the two. Uh, than I think we did in the past. Right. And so it's become, and just a, a bigger portion of our population have, uh, you know, either are immigrants or, or have uh, where there's implications within the immigration system for the things that they're doing. And so it's it's been a significant change, I, I think, that we've seen over the years why it's becoming a bigger issue.
4: Yeah, someone's status is the first question I always ask. You know, permanent resident or Canadian citizen or, um, you know... Refugee, like all the different categories. And then the first thing that's always on my instructions is I'm not offering you employment (laughs) advice or family law advice or immigration advice. But then, you know, when you get the answer that, you know, I'm a permanent resident or um, I'm a refugee, the first call is always to an immigration lawyer because, I mean, there's been some rule changes over the last 10 years that mean that depending on your sentence, a difference of a day can mean, you know basically an automatic removal from Canada with no right of appeal or you know some extra procedural protections
1: Exa- and that's exactly what happened to Mr. Wong, is that he ended up getting a sentence of nine months when nobody, including the judge, knew the, what the implications were. And he's now facing deportation without any right of appeal. And he's a permanent resident who's been here for 25 years. He has a nine-year-old daughter, a wife all, who are Canadian. He's well-established in Canada and you know, sold a couple of flaps of cocaine to an undercover officer and now finds himself with these devastating consequences that he wasn't aware of which makes, uh, I mean, and those are the types of cases that we deal with on a regular basis in our
4: office uh, where you... And so when did you get brought into the Wong case to to sort of clean it up? Were you involved in the Court of Appeal? or No, I actually picked it. This wasn't a case that I had intended to take up at all. This was a case that I picked up because
1: a, a friend of mine who had written the factum uh, got uh, a job with the Crown Counsel's office. <laughs> and conflicted so out. He, calls me, he calls me up in December and says, hey, Peter, can you argue this case uh, that's set for hearing in, in January? And so I picked it up to argue the case uh, um, with somebody else's factum. That's the best way to do it. It's like the British
4: model, right? British like You're model. the barrister. <laughs> it's delivered in a nice little Bow to you, and you can just get up and, and do your arguments, right?
1: So, it, 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 that's uh, pretty much the, uh, the you know what happened. It's but these two paragraphs of the factum. Uh, ended up becoming what the case turned on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a lot of his argument was around an, an entrapment defense
4: and some other some other things that... Uh, uh, I are... I thought there was a good entrapment defense. You thought there was a good entrapment I, defense? I would have argued entrapment. I mean, because one of the things that the Court of uh, Appeal said is um, I mean, so Mr. Wong has uh, does this sort of minor drug transaction, but cocaine, so it's treated sort of seriously in six months, right? That's the mark that you're sort of looking at If it's your sentence is below six months and you're a permanent resident, then you have a right of appeal. Yeah. If it's above six months, it's automatic deportation.
1: Well, with some minor discretion for an immigration office. So an officer can decide whether or not they're going to refer you. Uh, But if they refer you, then it's automatic deportation.
4: And so the he entered a guilty plea. Mr. Wong did, I think. Right. Correct. And then. The Court of Appeal sort of distinguished Wong from some other cases where there had been adjustments to sentence by saying, you know, there was really no defense here at all. Um, What would you have done? Set it for trial and lose and you'd be in this exact situation. But I thought there might have been an entrapment defense, but that's not what this is all about. This is about sort of taking into account the the immigration consequences as part of a a sentencing decision. Um, One of the factors that a judge looks at in sentencing.
1: Um, no, this is, that's, this is actually not a sentence appeal. So oh, it's words, not?
4: No, this isn't the sentence oh, appeal. Oh, this is to strike the
1: this plea. This is to strike the plea. So this right. is basically to say that you you need to be informed when you're entering a plea. Uh, so when you first make enter a, guilty, a plea of guilty, you need to be able to understand what went into that. And he wasn't uh, informed at all. He wasn't informed at all. So he didn't even know in the in the plea resolution process. And, and this is one of the things that I think the court's going to have to deal with, which is the, the plea plea resolution process where you you have discussions with the Crown about what you're going to plead guilty to, what the Crown's position is going to be, you you negotiate on both sides uh, for a resolution. And in this case, Mr. Wong didn't even know about the most important thing he shouldn't have been negotiating for.
4: And he should have known because there had been decisions out that that take sort of this stuff into account.
1: Well, in in my view, in particular in B.C., there was no excuse for for criminal counsel not to be aware uh, or at least have this on their radar as something that they should have told Mr. Wong, well, look, you're not a Canadian citizen. And in fact, they knew he wasn't a Canadian citizen because they told the court that he wasn't a Canadian citizen. But nobody thought that it would be a good idea for him to get some advice about the fact that this meant that he would be deported. Um, And in a lot of cases, deportation is a much more significant consequence than going to jail.
4: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, a lot of, and and this might be sort of a a quirk or a problem with our immigration system and the status that people have, but a number of my clients aren't Canadian citizens. Mm. They have other status, but I mean... They were born somewhere else, but they have lived their whole life in Canada. I had a client deported to, um, I think it was to Ethiopia, and he'd never been there, didn't speak the language, had hardly any family there, but just he was born there and never became a Canadian citizen.
1: Yeah. No, and we see a lot of cases like that, unfortunately. And often there are people, you know, I've, I saw, I had a client a few years ago who was, he because he had been a ward of the state, and in BC, the, the ministry doesn't apply for citizenship, for kids, and so he had been shuffled around. He had been here. He was here from when he was two months old. He was taken away from his mother at a very young age, uh, and had been bounced around through foster homes and through had horrific experiences going through the foster homes and and the problems that went along with that. Fell into the criminal justice system when he was in his teens. As he would. As as <laughs> right. I mean, it's a story that any many criminal lawyers have heard before. Yeah. Um. And and uh, you know, drug addiction and other problems, and then finds himself facing deportation when he's in his 20s because nobody applied for his citizenship uh, because the ministry who was his parent in, mm-hmm. or, or, or was supposed to be his parent um, don't apply for citizenship for for these people and so it's the people who have responsible, you know, more responsible parents or, or less responsible parents or uh, make certain decisions or sometimes it's, you know, I have uh, some clients I had one client who there were five kids. Mum and dad applied for citizenship for everybody, but had lost one of the the the, the birth certificates, and so never pursued. They, they just they never. He was got the it least done. favorite kid, and, and so they didn't get the paperwork done. Jeez. And uh, and because they didn't get the paperwork done, he ended up facing deportation when
4: he got involved in the criminal justice system. And so, I mean, we've seen so in. The case that you're arguing, it's about information given to someone when they plead guilty. In other cases, there's actually been courts of appeal that modify a sentence that's been handed down to to sort of mitigate some of those immigration consequences. There's one out of the Ontario Court of Appeal, I think, just last week, where someone got you know a global 12 month sentence for two drug deals, and the Court of Appeal actually said, well, actually, let's make it you know six months less a day on one and six months less a day on the other, so that we can avoid these immigration consequences. Is that because the immigration system, you think, maybe isn't as progressive or is sort of more punitive than than it should be? I mean, why is there that sort of disconnect? Why are criminal courts and judges in criminal trials tinkering with sentences and modifying and second-guessing pleas to accommodate the immigration system? Why don't we just change some of those immigration rules?
1: Well, I mean, some of it has to do with whether or not you want to put yourself at risk, right? So it's not uh, – in, in some cases, and, and what we'll do with, with respect to clients we are going to be engaging with the immigration system is that – if you can avoid putting yourself at risk at all, mm-hmm. even if you have access to appeals or you have access to certain mechanisms, you're much safer not putting your status at risk at all. So in some cases, it's about whether or not you're going to be put at risk. Um, in other cases, is that there's a range of appropriate sentences. And if there's a sentence that falls within the range that is appropriate for the type of offence, and that's what the Supreme Court said in a case called FAM. So the the our, our Supreme Court has said that you can take immigration consequences into consideration when you're sentencing somebody just like you could take other consequences into into consideration when you're sentencing we often see this with whether you decide to give somebody a conditional discharge as to if it's going to affect their employment or it's going to affect some some other part of their life in this case it's a particularly devastating consequence yeah. um and so you try to set up the uh um, you, you take that into consideration not so that if you're an immigrant, you get a lighter sentence or that no. you get a different sentence, but that if it's in the range of appropriate sentences, the difference between six months and six months less a day, meaning somebody is at risk of deportation or not at risk of deportation or gets an appeal uh, to the to an independent tribunal or is in the hands of an officer who may not even meet them uh, in deciding whether or not they're going to get deported and separated from their family, those are very significant differences that there's not really a, a meaningful difference between six months and six months less a day in terms of sentencing. Right. And so that's where we mm. see, um, where it used to be the threshold was two years. Right. Which is at least a meaningful threshold to
4: criminal lawyers. You know, yeah, it's a difference between a federal sentence and a reformatory sentence. Correct.
1: And so it used to be that you you had this threshold of two years for getting appeals, which made sense to criminal lawyers. Now the, the conservative government in twenty thirteen dropped that to six months and six months is just not a meaningful threshold for a criminal for, for criminal law. It has become one. Right. But it wasn't one before.
3: But a lot of people still don't totally recognize its significance. And is that um, what's the status of any constitutional challenges or that kind of thing to those provisions of the Immigration Act?
1: And these are the kinds of questions that I always get from criminal lawyers. Like, why, <laughs> yeah, why fix it? Why, don't you why fix isn't it? there a charter? Why isn't it? Well, one of the one of the things you very quickly realize practicing in these two areas is that we often end up leveraging criminal cases to be able to drag the charter into immigration law, um, which is uh, what we did, for example, in Apple napa which was the yeah. which was a, a human smuggling case. Well, we had a ride along for immigration cases that came along with our criminal case because in criminal law, you have All kinds of charter rights. And the whole thing is found. There's entire sections of the charter that are written for criminal law. And so there's a lot to work with in terms of... uh, And there's always a risk of jail or or Mm -hmm. other things that that bring the charter Section 7 in or... In immigration law, unless you're being detained or being deported to torture, there's pretty much no charter. Really? There there is no constitutional (laughs) principles that apply in any kind of meaningful way. I mean, people try to argue... That with respect to family separation or they try to argue with respect to psychological impact or they they try to bring the Charter into it but so far the courts have only really accepted the uh, the Charter coming in with respect to uh, so you'd be shocked at some I of the appreciate things that, that. So
3: deportation doesn't engage a security of the person interest or?
1: Not unless you're going to be tortured or killed when you get to the other
4: side. Damn. If only we Where had sort of like do? some global compact on migration and movement of people. <laughs> okay, I have to swear. If only.
3: Yes, if only. You may I'll have to see. look into that. Now. Yes, exactly. You you know. Justice Arbour, if you're listening. <laughs> um, okay, I. I I just had never really turned my mind to that. And I just would have assumed, for example, if legislation subjects someone potentially in certain circumstances to deportation without a right of appeal, that that would engage some kind of a charter-protected right. But I guess...
1: And that's uh, an assumption
3: that many criminal <laughs> lawyers
1: make. Are, have endless oh. surprises when they engage with my with my immigration cases. We're not that, the smartest.
3: Uh, <laughs> we don't know much oh, about
1: much. It's not so much that. It's more that, that criminal lawyers have a very... Um, rigorous view of procedure and fairness and evidence. And the nexus
3: between that and the charter.
1: And the nexus between that and the, but that when you get into an administrative tribunal um, is always shocking. Uh, Right. And I always feel like I'm Alice, you know, because I'm I'm a, I came from the criminal defense bar and my, you know, my, I I did my articling in criminal defense. I, I was, the you know, I went into law to become a criminal defense lawyer. And, uh, um, discovered immigration as I went along and it's been a bit of a, it's kind of going through the looking glass, it going into immigration law where um, I think my record so far is quadruple hearsay uh, <laughs> where the, the minister put forward, so they, they had my, my client was being, there was allegations of espionage and my client was alleged to have sold some information to a guy who was a front man for an organization in Washington and so the Canada Border Services Agency officer talked to somebody in Washington, who talked to somebody in Thailand, who knew my client, <laughs> and the the guy in Thailand said that my told the guy in Washington that my guy was a bad guy, and the guy in Washington told the officer in. Canada that if the guy in Thailand says that the guy's a bad guy, then he's a bad guy and the officer was not available to be cross-examined uh. on the statement that was being put before the tribunal <laughs> which is the kind of thing that makes a criminal lawyer's head explode. I know, I'll be
3: making a note of that case for my advanced criminal evidence course that I'm and teaching next so semester. It
1: was, uh, and so when the when the member saw, and, and the member immediately said, he says to me I, I, he says I can see that Mr. Edelman is becoming agitated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and before you launch into lengthy submissions, let me just put your mind at ease that I will not be deciding this on admissibility. However, I am going to give this document very little weight
4: right oh thank you. <laughs> thank you i was like well that was which is uh,
1: pretty much the best you can hope for it in,
4: in the in the tribunal i should use that example to explain to a client of mine who recently told me that he was going to win his trial and i said i i don't know there's a lot of evidence including eyewitnesses who saw you do what you say you didn't do and he said no 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 but that's all hearsay it's like, well, it's eyewitness evidence. They're going to come to court and say it. And he's like, yeah, and we're all going to hear them say it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's not quite that's not what hearsay is.
3: Unfortunately. <laughs>
4: <Pretty
3: close. laughs> oh dear. Um, so, how did you get into immigration? Then was it because you were starting to see immigration consequences for your criminal clients, or was it just a strategic thing on your part? Or
1: no, actually, oh, I discovered okay. uh, immigration law in law school. Actually, I was in I was, I was in law school, and a friend of mine was going to. Uh, there was an organization in uh, Montreal uh, called Action Refugié that goes out to the detention center. And uh, there's an immigration uh, yeah. detention center, and I was working uh, part time in a criminal law office and had gone out to the jails and whatnot. But I hadn't been out to the immigration detention center. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'm always up for going to see a new jail, and yeah. so I thought I'd, I'd full of out. children and families. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, it was not what I. It's so it, so. I go to the so I go to the immigration detention center and I speak. Spanish. And so I met with this guy who's a Spanish speaker. He was a guy from Colombia. And he had this big stack of papers in French that needed to be filled out in 28 days. And he didn't speak a word of French. And there was nobody who was going to help him do this. And I was like, well, this can't possibly be the way this system works. And sure enough, that is the way the system works. And uh, so by the end of law school, I was out there two days a week, uh, you know, and, and was uh, at, at the detention center. And they would bring the new, uh, you know, El Nuevo, el nuevo yeah, the, right. new, the new guy, right? Yeah, so They, know, would, they yeah. would bring the new guy down and I would uh, 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 you know, we would do what we could as law students to try to to help these people uh, in, in the system. And then I've been working in the, in the immigration system since then. Yeah. Where
3: That's crazy. Yeah, I, I had some exposure because of my prosecution work. I also prosecuted a fraud on the Group of Five um, private sponsorship of refugees program, which has come to be so well-known now since the influx of Syrian refugees and everything, but... um Uh, So I've like in dribs and drabs gotten to know certain programs through just, you know, little cases that I've had. Um, And then the the case that I had where the Apolinapa case was relevant again was. But it's it's funny because, you know, speaking of the cluelessness of um, criminal lawyers, I in the course of my submissions was asked a question by the judge about um, what constitutes entry into Canada. So has a person entered into Canada when they present themselves at a customs checkpoint. And I argued, no. I said, well, no, you're not in Canada until you've been admitted into Canada. And uh, pretty much on the fly, though, but I just intuitively like that seemed to make sense to me. And over the lunch break, I looked at a couple cases and I satisfied myself that I was correct on that. And I would say part of the judge's reasons hinged on that submission, which he accepted as factually accurate. And then when the Apple, and Apple case was making its way to the Supreme Court, the counsel from my office that we're working on it called me to ask me, like, how did the judge get this whole thing about you're not in Canada until you get across the board? And I said, is that not correct? He's like, no, not at all. Yeah. Like, you're at the airport at Pearson, you're in Canada. I thought, yeah, but for the purposes of the act, because there's all kinds of things about, you know, in order to assess your admissibility into Canada. So I thought, well, you're not in Canada. Anyway, so there you go. And that, like, a lot ended up turning on that. Um, oops. Oops.
1: <laughs> one of my first, one of my first clients, uh, learned that lesson the hard way. He was, uh, he was a, uh, it, the, I think the vice president or anyway, one, one a high up member of, uh, a, um, Motorcycle organization uh, in, motorcycle in uh, or Washington, the in, in Washington. Bike enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <the laughs> bike enthusiasts. So he shows up in full regalia on his uh, on his way. So he drives up the I five and takes a wrong turn, Oops. and ends up at the at the at the border. And the first thing he says to the officers. So he's in his full on uh, criminal go, gear. Oh, oh yeah he's, he's, <laughs> he's got the, the the full gear on and uh a, a loaded uh licensed handgun in the, in the back and shows up at the port of entry and is like i took a wrong turn i, I just want to go back because once you go th- once you go past a certain point you can't turn around anymore and he's right. like i didn't realize i was coming to the border and they're like thank you very much they arrested him Put him up against the the wall, took him downtown, issued a deportation order, and then sent him uh, and then sent him back. And uh, it, it, they at that point took the position that he had entered Canada when he was at the port of entry, and that right. they were with fully within their rights to be able to arrest him at, the, at that. Uh. And
3: then just turn around.
1: So and So they had Florida? a different view. I should have had you around <laughs> yeah, at that exactly. time. Because, oh no, uh, no,
3: my CBSA friend. Because friends. oddly enough, the
1: federal court they, <laughs> took, took the other took the other view at that time. Who
3: knew? <laughs> Who
4: knew? There. there you go. Retroactively, you're yeah. correct.
3: Oh, we try. We do try to do our best. But, yeah, I've actually tried to encourage someone that I know who is an immigration lawyer that she could develop quite a nice little niche just um, providing independent legal advice to people that are charged with offenses. I said, just reach out to some criminal lawyers and figure out that part of the act really well. And uh, that, could be,
4: that could be... Yeah, because nobody wants to be on the uh, on the back end of an ineffective assistance of counsel claim at <laughs> in front of the Supreme Court, right?
1: Yeah, that's... Uh One would hope we would try to avoid
4: those things. That's the the only fear that keeps me honest. Yeah, right. (laughs) If I knew I could get away with it, then.
3: That'd be another thing. You
4: know, I'll just give advice willy nilly.
3: And huh. it, it looks like for your case tomorrow, you have quite a suite of interveners as well.
4: We do. So, and, uh, actually, Michael, you'll be happy to know that
1: the uh, the Attorney General of C- or the uh, Directeur des poursuites criminelles is of the view that you don't even need to inform your clients about the sentence. Oh, really? Yeah, you can you can plead them guilty without informing them about the sentence. So, uh, so I
4: rarely do that. So
1: you might support you 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 may you may find some support you may find some leeway in your practice <laughs> if the court agrees with uh, with their seriously. Position. That's,
3: I mean, that's, there's that's like there. a lot of established case law about oh. informed pleas. Like, what? So, what information then is the accused? You just report? need
1: to know that you're giving up your right to trial and accept the facts. Accepting voluntary, the facts, no a, inducements.
4: Is that me, Quebec? My God. <laughs> <laughs>
3: anyway, we'll okay. see.
1: We'll see how that. Uh, see how
4: I mean, that I should sense. show them some of the instructions I get because sometimes when my clients, you know, want to plead guilty, and I think they have a good shot at a trial i mean like you go overboard on your instructions Uh, so so they fully understand what could happen it's like it's a joint position and the judge usually goes along with a joint position but they're not bound by a joint position and the maximum is you know 14 years in jail um so normally you go the other way and and overly informed sometimes
1: well maybe you just say you're 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 well above
2: the
4: bare minimum of (laughs) confidence there we go i I strive to be just above barely above the bare minimum of confidence that's all i need (laughs) well you sound like you're head and shoulders above so that's
3: uh, and so instruction speaking of kind of consequences i know you had mentioned that you thought your listeners um your more regular listeners might be interested in hearing a bit about the case that mike did i think we've maybe chatted about it a little bit before um So I don't know if you want to talk about it because it's tangentially related in the sense that um, it's a a change in the law that kind of changed the rule of the game for people who had pled guilty to offenses in terms of their um, their access to pardons.
4: Yeah. And it's a connection to British Columbia where uh, where Peter's from and comes from. So, um, yeah, so. Uh, some lawyers out in B.C., Eric Goddardy, who's a, an amazing lawyer and does lots of civil rights and constitutional work. Um, he and I sort of independently at the same time um, launched a constitutional challenge against um, some retrospective increases in pardon wait times so it used to be that if you wanted to apply for a pardon if if the offense was less serious and, and the crown proceeded by way of a summary conviction you had to wait three years from the expiry of your sentence before you were eligible to apply for a pardon doesn't mean you're going to get it but you could have to wait three years to apply and five years for more serious offenses and in 2012 those uh, those waiting periods were moved up so it was five Five years for a summary conviction offense and you had to wait 10 years for an indictable offense and indictable offenses. I mean, technically they should be the most serious, but lots of things can be prosecuted by way of indictment, including, you know, thefts and frauds and sort of minor, minor things. So a lot of people were having to wait, you know, double the amount of time to get a pardon. And the part that was unfair and that we argued was unconstitutional was the fact that this was retrospective. So you could have, as my client did, pled guilty to an offense, accepted responsibility, served your sentence, turned your life around, um, Um, and fully expected that you would be able to get your pardon or apply for your pardon in five years. And then uh, in my client's case, uh, a few weeks before he was actually eligible and could put his application in, the law changed and they altered the deal um, and doubled the limits. And so we argued um, a variety of sections, but argued that it was unconstitutional and the timing of it worked out very well because we sort of collaborated, Eric and I, on, on the factums, and my case was set to go first, and it got adjourned. The Crown really didn't want to want to run it, so they were looking for a reason to adjourn it. This is after the election, and so after the Liberals came into power,
3: and there was a lot of "We're changing the law. Don't worry, it's gonna, it's coming. We're we're doing a full review. I mean, we can't we can't commit that the law is going to change." So but how's that work for, yeah,
1: you? <laughs> oh exactly.
4: yeah, so I
3: haven't seen see that. I saw, I saw that reform package. Uh, <laughs> Every well, time it comes up, we're like,
4: we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, they did. They tried to get us to adjourn it. And so they they a co-counsel, because another counsel joined up with me, sort of slightly expanded the argument a little bit on the day of. And, and the Crown insisted on adjourning it. And so we adjourned it. And so Eric's case in BC actually proceeded first um, with much of the same evidence. This client was in a very similar position. And he was successful. And there was a long decision about that. And so we were able to leverage that into getting the Crown to actually uh, consent to. To our application. And so, if you live in B.C. or in Ontario, um, the unconstitutional increase in, in eligibility periods uh, retrospectively doesn't apply to you. If you live anywhere else in Canada um, or reside anywhere else in Canada, you're still bound by this unconstitutional law. But don't worry, the government is on it and they're going to change it at some point, maybe.
1: And will this also apply to the, because um, there's also a three strikes, you're, you're out policy on uh, on indictable offences. Uh, and for certain sexual offenses that you can't get a pardon uh, or that you, you, you can't get it. a pardon at all for right. it. Um, so those are also affected by this
4: yeah that's one of the that's the the sort of the broadening of the application that um that our count, that counsel for the uh the other client who was with me represented by Michael Lacey who is the newly elected uh, president of the criminal Lawyers association um so he broadened it to include that and that's sort of what set the crown off um It's slightly... Unclear in the endorsement, but it seems that Pardons Canada, after a couple months of sort of not recognizing these decisions, um, is allowing those types of applications to go forward. Um, we've actually done an application for someone who would be excluded um, because of the type of uh, conviction, but um, that application seems to be processing. So there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect between what happens in court and what the officials at uh, at um, at the parole board and Pardons Canada do. But, um, but
3: if anybody- been granted
0: yet?
4: Well, no, it takes months and months to be to be granted. Right. Um but they actually they've said that we're looking at sort of a 6-month turnaround, which is a lot faster than it was before and we're getting close to that time limit, so we'll see if if any of these things actually come through.
1: And so the so for the immigration lawyers out there, the the in terms of of who it is who's going to be eligible is you need to look at Ooh. the point at which they were convicted or the time they committed the offense or what's the what's the point that you're looking at in terms of which pardon regime applies to your your client
4: so the time period you want to look at is 2012 because that's when um the safe streets and community act um uh came into force so it's before that we're looking at convictions before that but the really important part to look at is when you even if you're eligible for the pardon or or the this sort of the retroactive increases don't apply to you before you apply your full Sentence needs to be completed, which includes not only jail time but also probation orders and now, importantly, victim fine surcharges and any other any any other um, monetary penalties. So there's been lots of cases where people, you know, they were convicted before the change. They've well met their, you know, they they're done their probation. they have done their jail. They've well met their um, three years or five years, but there's a victim fine surcharge that never got paid off because they were homeless at the time or or poor at the time or it fell through the cracks they forgot about it Um, and they pay it off and then the clock starts at that point so it's important to look at all of the consequences or all of the the sanctions that are imposed because uh, you know quite often those things can be missed i think as emily will tell you sometimes fines don't get paid at all
3: yeah yeah so so the the clock st- you under the old regime before they changed the law you became eligible to apply for a pardon 3 or 5 years after you had completed your sentence
4: right and it's right. that's still the case but now we have mandatory victim fine surcharges that are being imposed uh, a lot more often and quite often you know someone will turn their life around complete their sentence and there'll be some portion of a sentence like that that you know isn't enforced i mean I, I'd love to know how many fines and victim fine surcharges are still outstanding because there doesn't seem to be very much enforcement or follow up on that. So if you received a victim fine surcharge back in you know 2006 and completed your sentence but never paid that victim fine surcharge and no one might have t- called you or sent you a letter or told you about it or indicated that it was a problem and you can only sort of discover it after you've submitted your, your application and, and then they tell you that you haven't paid it off.
1: No, know, we deal with that quite... We, we deal with it on, in the immigration side because you can apply for rehabilitation for foreign convictions but the time frame also starts from completion of sentence and I don't know how many cases I've dealt with over the years where the client comes into my office and it turns out that there's still $25 outstanding on this file from 1996 mm-hmm. and so then they pay off the last $25 to the court in Tucson, Arizona or whatever it is um, and that starts the five year clock ticking uh, and so you have this 99, 1996 conviction that's still going to be a problem for another five Years because you didn't pay the last twenty-five dollars of your fine, um, and so yeah, it's a which is one of the things I'm very uh, conscious of with my clients uh, or my criminal clients is to make sure they just just go in and pay it all, right. get it done with, and get the documents and keep the documents. Yeah because uh, the other problem is trying to dig up these
4: documents from courts from 1996. And I'm envious of these clients that you have that are able to pay <laughs> off small monetary fines and actually keep their documents because oh, none that. of my clients can.
1: <laughs> I saying, I'm not to say all my clients fit in that category, but there's, yeah. there's
4: definitely you know, some, there some of some. them which we try to encourage the clients to be doing. Uh, <laughs> so we're recording this on Thursday. Mm-hmm. You're in the Supreme Court on Friday, so tomorrow. Tomorrow. Morning. Yeah,
3: it had been my intention to come, but I have a, um, a meeting with my MPP in, in the middle of it, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the webcast. And I was actually invited to an event, at, like a little meet and greet thing after that's being put on by the um, the students, refugee yeah, the Associated. Carl folks. Uh, so, so yeah, so but <clears throat> we're heading out of town unfortunately because I think it's at 3:30 or something. But
4: but my question was, what is the um, pregame? Ritual sort of uh, that you go through when before court? Are there any like. Quirks, you know, like baseball players always jump over the chalk line, or they only eat, like, you know, um, uh, who was it Wade Boggs always ate, you know, the bucket of fried chicken before a game? Oh wow, I don't, I, I guess I'll have to come up with some. Uh, yeah, you don't I, really I feel,
1: mean... I, I, f- I feel uh, like there's something missing from <laughs> for my court preparation. <laughs>
3: and that, have you, uh, um, how many times have you appeared in the Supreme Court?
1: This will be my fifth, my f- well, my fifth time appearing, my fourth time arguing. Okay, so and then this is the. Th- kind of uh, the third, where I'm, I'm uh, the second time where I have, where I have my case as the main case. Right. Appaloon, Appa, there were eight of us. That's so right, it was yeah. a bit of a different mm-hmm. experience. Um, so we were, like, I was counsel on Appaloon, Napa, but it, there was a one much of many. bigger, one of many counsel. And so Tran, which is the one we just got a decision on recently, and then this one are the first, uh, the first ones were... Where it's been, my, where I've had the lead case.
3: And do you find like, do you feel pretty comfortable with it now, or is it still like a kind of when you walk into the courtroom, like eh, you know?
1: Well, I mean, it's definitely I mean, something I prepare for a lot yeah. more. Than, yeah. uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. than, <Some laughs> don't don't, don't wing it appeal. so much. Yeah. I was just, uh, no, I was just talking with some clerks earlier uh, earlier today, and I, I was saying, well, it's you. The amount of preparation that goes into it goes up exponentially with each level oh, of, of courts. So what would be five hours of preparation for each hour. Of, of, you know, before the provincial court or before a tribunal becomes,
4: you know, 50 hours by the time you're at the Court of Appeal and 500 hours yeah. by the
1: time you're in the... Uh,
4: and sort of conversely, the amount of time you have to make arguments goes down and down and down. Exactly. And yeah. so 60 minutes is actually 60 minutes. Yeah. Unless you're Joe Arvey or someone like that
1: who <laughs> can get extra time... Get away because, with it. I, I think... Uh, was that Frank D'Ario this, I was just this gonna week say Frank, in the in I've the, uh, the Groya case mm-hmm. got uh, was able to go on for 15 minutes
4: because well because he's Frank. Yeah, yeah. no one wants and to cut him off and everyone wants to hear him speak. I saw him so, once uh, when he was
3: representing an intervener, and basically the court wanted to cut off the main party's time and just give it to Frank and basically did end up giving him significant extra time because it was like counsel was of absolutely no assistance and Mr. D'Ario is actually being quite helpful so carry on um we
1: did that with marlis edward in in, uh, in our case and justifiably so i've i she was able to develop an entire theory of overbreadth in 10 pages that will put all of the factums that i've uh, that i ever do to shame in the sense that if uh, when i can when i can write at that level of concision and clarity uh you know i i'll yeah. well using well, word, well, well you'll, you'll know you'll have you'll have arrived but I was like what, what I what I need 40 pages to do
3: uh, you just used the word concision and that right there is like you're on track you're totally on track with well, a nice yeah. tight little word like that Got that's
4: 240 characters now on Twitter right so that's right
3: that's not good yeah. for those of us who are trying to be
4: concise. But one of the one of the best factums ever uh, read was it was argued by Frank, and I think the factum was I'm going to say it was uh, largely written by Megan Savard, who works with uh, works with Frank um, on the Cody case, following Jordan about sort of reinterpreting delays and stuff. And I think the factum because there were it was written as an intervener. It was like eight pages long or five pages long, but I mean, like every word was perfect.
1: Oh yeah no they've uh, it's it it's a certain style of of
4: being able to uh
1: what's that that, that old saying right I, I i didn't have i've written you a long letter because i didn't have time to write you a short one
3: Exactly and students uh, to my legal writing students if you're listening boom that's exactly right <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> It's true that's I like that um, well, we should probably think about wrapping up because we have small children home alone who apparently are being like pretty much assaulted by the puppy dog that's been locked up all day.
4: Yeah, do you do CAS work? Because I think <laughs> no, uh, we've we got a kid be. in daycare that <laughs> we might not get picked up. <laughs> uh,
3: it's a bit of a problem. What we can say, though, is that it is not snowing, nor is it minus 20, which apparently could be the case by this evening. So, you're welcome. You've come from Vancouver. A
4: sweet, sweet BC child. He'll <laughs> <laughs> never make it out.
3: Yeah. Well, you guys had a pretty rough winter last year, though, hey? We did, you yeah, by, by, by BC
4: standards. Yeah, by BC standards. And uh,
3: a hot summer, be. too, right?
4: You
1: know, but I'm... Uh, I mean, I'm from Ontario, so...
3: Oh, you've got the uh, constitution. You've got the fortitude
1: for... We, we, you know, that's... No, I've lost the fortitude. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I used to have the fortitude, but I've been in BC for too long now that, that you
3: know... <laughs> Living the dream. We like,
1: we like to keep winter on the mountain where it's... We
4: can, we <laughs> can go up and visit it, you go ski on it, And then, you know, it's... uh, Yeah, it just seems like a more...
1: Civilized way to deal
4: with that. Agreed. All right, minus twenty tonight. Minus twenty. Good times. It's November.
3: Thank you so much for reaching out to us. This was yeah, really thank fun. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. And, uh, definitely be following your case with interest, and we'll. I know my students. I already got. I mentioned it today in class, and I already got an email with some points of clarification from someone who had clearly either read the court of appeal decision or the factum, or I don't know, but I was already digging right in. So. Well, I, I hope I your know.
4: students do a better job than me. When you had to duck out to take a phone call from the kid, I totally made a mistake about the case, which is sort of weird because I presented. <laughs> on it at the, at the DCO <laughs> panel and I actually have read all the material. So don't do what I do, students.
3: Yes. Attention to detail is paramount. So good luck tomorrow and uh, thanks again.
4: All right. Well, thank you.
1: Perfect.
3: Okay, awesome. Take care.